With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. This holiday season, I hope that you stay bundled up and ready to enjoy some scary stories. So let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm a doctor and all my patients share a nightmare. They are lost in the back rooms. Written by Kyle Harrison. I, Dr. James Wesley, place this testimony here as a record of the events leading up to the death. Note the destruction of everybody that worked at the corporate offices of Osset Pharmaceutical found in Washington State. We were told that the work we were doing was going to help people. This started last spring. I got a call from the headmaster at Carbuncle Academy. I had been studying medicine there for nearly three years and never once been asked to his office. So the thought of being summoned actually terrified me. Marsh was old as dirt and as stern as a brick wall. He smoked a pipe and wore clothes that looked like they belonged in the 1930s. As I entered his office, he placed a vinyl record on an old player and let classical music fill the air. He told me to close the door and asked me if I was familiar with the piece, to which I admitted that I wasn't. According to him, the music was created by a local cult leader back in the 1880s named Abraham Zwayne. The headmaster explained that Zwayne had managed to convince hundreds in the area to kill themselves due to a meteor shower. If I might ask, why are you telling me this, sir? His bizarre ramblings about ritualistic genocide had left me unnerved, and I wasn't entirely sure what the purpose was of my arrival to his office. He puffed his pipe again and focused his old pale eyes on me, before explaining that a rumor had spread across the academy campus that I was involved in extracurricular activities with questionable students. I did not lie, and I have no intention of concealing the truth from anyone that hears this tale. Full disclosure is necessary in order for guilt and blame to be placed where they belong. When I arrived at Carbuncle Academy three years prior, one of my first interactions with the students was actually near the East Gate. Another student, a senior, had just plummeted from the rampart and smashed their skull all over the courtyard below. Dozens of students and teachers were trying to get a look at the grisly scene. One in particular, a young medical orderly named Herbert, told me that the student who had committed suicide had been involved in strange behaviors surrounding a church that sat in the South Courts. I have always had an inquisitive mind and it bothered me that somebody with a bright future ahead of them would toss it all the way after a single visit to an old religious institution. And so I traveled there myself. According to others that I met during my time here, many believed that the church was not made by human hands. It had an otherworldly feel about it, and people gathered there to express their interest in the unknown. The leader of these congregants was named Severn, Thomas Severn. 
and he greeted me like a sheep to be brought to slaughter. Considering how easily I was roped into this mess, that analogy proves true in more ways than one. Severin explained to me that the land around Carbuncle Academy was considered sacred by the local people, and of course the immigrants that settled and took over and built the academic buildings had no interest in such superstitions and plundered the land for their own benefit. The church, he claimed, was the only last remnant of the old world. I asked him about these strange rumors surrounding the church and the student that had committed suicide and he told me that there were star charts that some students studied here in the church that the teachers considered questionable. Apparently, they showed systems that didn't match modern astrology, and therefore they were deemed inferior. The student that had jumped from the wall had somehow learned more about these charts, and that knowledge had caused them to end their life. I told all of this to Headmaster Marsh, explaining that ever since that encounter, I had dabbled in the esoteric along with Herbert and Severn. I had come to theorize that the charts which baffled so many were actually not showing any stars that we were familiar with at all, but rather from an age long past, where these skies were still luminous in this area. I also admitted to him and believed that the charts were created by visitors from the stars. Saying such things out loud made me feel foolish in front of such a learned man. But to my surprise, he only puffed his pipe and nodded in agreement. I had heard you were writing such papers under a pseudonym, trying to see if any of the other teachers in the academy agreed with you. As it turns out, there is a chapter of this school's history that has been covered up, which relates to your own investigations, and that is where the story of Zwayne comes in. Headmaster Marsh explained to me that the board of directors had agreed to keep the works of Zwayne under lock and key almost a hundred years ago, but over the past few generations, things got forgotten and a few of the papers that the cult leader had written were able to leak, and the star charts and the books that I had been studying at the church in secret were actually part of those papers. But are you saying that there's truth to the ramblings of a fictional story where he claimed to have seen aliens? I asked. The story which I can summarize connected to the meteor shower that Marsh had already told me about. During the late 1880s, Zwayne said that large monolithic objects fell from the sky all across Dunwich County. He believed these objects were actually from the Earth's moon and they revealed that these aliens were living amongst us. It had sounded insane when I had studied it, but the papers had included detailed descriptions of the aliens and illustrations. The beings looked like massive slugs with thousands of eyes and skin as smooth as silver. Moon beasts, he had called them, and he claimed that the crash of the monoliths was the first step in their plan for coming to Earth. We had hoped to keep these matters private, but because of your own meddling, We've attracted the interest of a third party. Somebody that wants to invest in this goose chase. Marsh told me. And to my surprise, he told me that this new company wanted to hire me full time as a medical professional. You understand, of course, this is a sort of employment would be off the record and the academy would deny any involvement. Marsh warned. I was still dumbstruck by this sudden turn of events, so... I did my best to keep my feet on the ground and recap what was happening. 
So, a fresh-faced entrepreneur company wants to hire me as a medical professional based off my theories relating to esoteric magic and star charts from ancient cults. I asked, rubbing the back of my neck sheepishly. It all sounded a bit outlandish. That's all I know for now. A Mr. Lang is meant to contact you shortly and give you further detail. But I should also advise this is not the sort of position that you turn down, James. Your papers make the academy look bad. We're doing you a favor by letting it slide and getting you out of our hair rather than kicking you onto the streets. I grit my teeth, trying to think fast as I stood up and looked at his taxidermy trophies. If that's the case, then it would be awful for anybody to realize that you were ostracizing me just because I spoke the truth. I countered. Marsh raised a weary eyebrow. He knew that I was threatening him. What do you want? All we want is to make this go away. Let Osset have the headache. He said tiredly. I knew my demands before he even finished speaking. Herbert and Severn, their expertise in these fields exceeds mine and their insights will be valuable. They will be joining me for this new assignment, I told him. Marsh promised he would make it so. And so he did. I didn't really pay much attention to the details of our transfer to the small town of St. Mavis. There was a clinic there that was reopened for Osset a few months back and that was where I got to meet Lang. He was a tall, dark-haired Asian man with a brutish spirit and most of that first meeting is a bit of a blur. I was too eager to find out what sort of work my colleagues and I would be assigned to pay attention to. Especially because I knew it meant some of the theories that I had written about might be true. When I expressed such excitement to Lang, he promptly offered to give me the charts and notes that were connected to the scandal the Academy so vehemently wanted to cover up. The Zwayne incident, he called it. For posterity, I'll provide a short summary of what we found in those notes before I explain what we did with this knowledge. Despite being a religious zealot, I was surprised in the writings of Abraham Zwayne to find that he was a learned man and he studied astrology and philosophy quite avidly. He included quotes from Shintoism and even ancient Mayan texts in his writings which all centered around the belief that the world we live in is not the only one that exists. In short, Zwayne saw through the monoliths a secondary realm that exists alongside the one that we live and breathe on. The true world, as he called it, sounded starkly different than the flourishing life of Earth. Zwayne said on the other side of the mirror, life hardly existed at all. There were long streaking lines of white and strange tall buildings that defied architectural standards of our world. Corridors and stairwells that panned whole galaxies and seemed to circle black holes. He theorized that these places were connected somehow to the star charts from the church and that the church itself was in fact a conduit which held more power in our universe than others. A conduit he claimed was the result of the collected memory of the culture around that spot. The longer the collective memory could recall details about the location of the true world that existed there, the longer the location would still exist in our world as well. This explains why the members of the congregation felt an otherworldly connection. When they saw and prayed in the pews, they were actually sliding in and out of an alternate dimension. 
We're hoping we can try to learn more about this collective memory that he spoke about. We begin trials tomorrow, Lang explained. I should have had further questions about all of this, but the sheer excitement to be a part of the groundbreaking discovery was so overwhelming that I kept them to myself. The next day, we had about a dozen people show up to participate in what Lang called a clinical trial. The drugs we administer here are not FDA approved, of course, so we'll be signing waivers and non-disclosure agreements. You'll be paid once the six-week period has come to an end. In private, he explained to me that each patient would be given a slow drip of psychedelic drugs and other substances that were designed to enhance neurological functions. I began the testing immediately. It took less than 48 hours for one of the subjects to die. I would like to say that I knew their name or that I understood why they had died, but I can't say either of those things because I would be lying. I had just finished a shift rotation on the other side of the facility where we were working to manufacture the equipment for these samples when I heard a loud scream from the patient area. My natural instinct was to run and assist. Herbert was there holding down this patient as she cried horribly and shook and vomited. After a full recovery about an hour later, I took the time to obtain a statement. You were given approximately four doses before you experienced this unfortunate side effect. Could you describe what caused this or what you feel went wrong? The patient was looking at us like we were strangers even though we had been there for a while now. True, we hardly knew each other but the level of distrust was disheartening. I encouraged openness, especially due to the health benefits. I'm starting to think that this might be a lie. She said as she coughed up more blood. Per standard protocol, I urged them to explain what caused their outburst. You'll think that I'm crazy, but I saw something slinking in the shadows. It felt like I was back there in those corridors, running from it. The halls never ended and the strange shadow just kept getting closer. I was soon aghast to discover that four other patients had similar experiences and I had missed them. That couldn't be a coincidence. When I told Lang about it, his response troubled me even more. Increase their dosage and monitor their brain activity. I want to get a clear picture of what they're seeing the next time that they have an episode. Are you suggesting that we actively place our patients in harm's way? I asked. We are only letting their mental state be at risk. Their physical body remains here. We have no means of crossing over to the other side and neither do the creatures they are envisioning. Lang said dismissively. I wasn't so sure that was a solid excuse, but I was obeying orders still and not questioning the methods. I wanted to learn more and it felt like we were finally making progress. So I did as I was told. The results began to trickle again over the next month. Our patients were sharing the same nightmare. I documented what I could and found the notations even more terrifying than I care to admit. The first pair, a man and a woman, reported that the dream consisted of a labyrinth, much like the ancient Grecian mythos. This one seemed to be haunted by beasts that clawed at my patients' minds long after they woke up. The bear, it reeks of death, it hunts us relentlessly. We walked the halls for days trying to find a place to hide. But each path we took, even it felt like we were going forward, it wound us back around to the core of that awful maze. 
When they described the maze, the third patient said sometimes that there were doors and stairs. They did not always appear, but when they did, they would lead to different segments of this starry world. One led to a hotel. The rooms were always empty, but the patients would talk about screams and crying in the empty rooms. Something trying to dig its way out from under. They often felt like their feet were heavier when they went inside these rooms. So they marked them as dangerous and avoided them as best as they could. Another talked about a forest. I found this framework quite interesting because it seemed to follow the same principles as the hallways. The forest would snag and twist about, circling a lonesome mountain that the patients never seemed able to reach. They would hear distant static that was luring them to the mountain, but the closer they got, the more the massive landmass would re-maneuver itself. Lang called these infinite corridors the key to our knowledge of the true world. He wanted more information and told me to continue to increase the dosages. It all seemed to be progressing well until the first suicide. It had been almost three months since we had started these human tests. Most of the people that we were using had lost sanity. Others seemed to have been driven to stay inside the dream world and refused to wake up. The patient that passed away was actually one of Herbert's. A young man that came to the clinical trial for money to support his family. He was only meant to stay for a week. He was given the max dosage to enter the shared consciousness faster. And we documented what we learned via a new method Lang wanted to try. Where the dreams were projected onto a screen. The subject, whom I must admit I never learned the name of, was immediately thrust into the corridors as soon as the syringe had pierced his skin. His readings were similar to somebody who had fallen from a great height. There were rows of doors in front of him, all marked very similarly with the number three on them. He approached the first one and tested it out, swinging it open to see another corridor that stretched for miles with glowing blue lights on either side. Before he went in, the subject tried the next door and found the exact same thing. Then they tried another door and another and another until they were surrounded by open doors that all seemed to lead to the blue, fiery hallway. They reluctantly entered and I whispered to Herbert if he had ever seen this portion of the alternate dimension before. I had been doing some studying of their mental health as they go into the true world. If I'm not mistaken, the halls and the mazes they find themselves in are of their own making. Each time that they're tossed into this labyrinth, they are making new pathways that intersect and grow the maze, he told me. I was fascinated by that theory, but too focused on the feed to provide any sort of insight on what it might mean. There was a single door in front of the subject. This one was already open, and inside there was a slender woman wearing a familiar outfit. That looks like the uniforms from Osset, I commented trying to get a better look at the woman. She was a redhead with sparkly blue eyes and I'll admit even attractive. She was mouthing words we couldn't understand to the subject, and I was trying my best to keep an eye on his physical reaction. Whatever she's saying to him, it's causing quite a spike in his adrenaline, Herbert said as he reached for the device that would take the subject out of the dream. Oh, wait, we need to see what happens. This could help us, I said. I regret pushing things that day. The woman kept talking, the levels kept rising, and then at the end of whatever speech she had given to our subject, 
She took out a syringe. It reminded me of the same one that we administered to place them within the dream. She plunged it into the patient's neck, and in that instant, they woke. They gasped for air as if they had been drowning, their gaze confused and fearful as they looked at us. What happened in there? I asked, but they didn't respond. Before they even dared to try and comprehend the situation, the patient jumped from their beds and ran toward a nearby railing. They ran straight on past the railing, falling to their death without even a scream passing their lips. An autopsy revealed nothing out of the ordinary for their brain function. Lang considered the whole incident just a simple misunderstanding and miscalculation, but I wasn't so sure. I kept replaying the footage of the blue-eyed woman in my head over and over. Who was she? Did she work for us? What had she told the subject to make them want to kill themselves? Over the next few weeks, those questions were compounded by even more issues with the patients. Some were refusing treatment, harming themselves to stop the dreams. They just wanted to go home. I felt sorry for them, but Lang insisted that their work was hardly finished. We've only scratched the surface on what this maze is, what sort of abilities it can give us. We need more players in this game, James. Can you help us? I knew what he was asking. He wanted me to be a recruiter, and I played that part quite well. I went back to the academy this time as a representative of the Osset Company. Even though this campus had been my home for nearly two years, stepping back into a now was overwhelming. I didn't feel very welcome anymore. A few students stopped and saw my badge that represented Osset and made a few hushed comments amongst themselves, and then they zigzagged around to avoid being near me. I turned, about to ask what they were saying, when somebody bumped into me and dropped their coffee on my clothes. Ah, watch it! I said jumping back and looking at the young woman. She had curly red hair and freckles and blue eyes. She reminded me of the same woman that I had seen in the visions of our patients. But how was that possible? I'm so sorry, are you okay? She asked as I tried to ignore the burning liquid that covered my shirt. I'm fine, it's fine. Do I know you? I said as I helped her gather the papers that she had dropped. I couldn't help but notice familiar esoteric symbols and graphs on the paper. Was she a student of Zwayne's teachings too? I don't think so, but you know me now. I'm Emma Carter, she told me as she spotted the logo on my shirt. And you're with the corporation that we're contracting with, she asked in surprise. You're familiar with us. Headmaster Marsh made an announcement about a month ago that we had a new internship program happening with the company. But I'll admit that's not the only time I heard about you. Let's just say that there are a few ugly rumors circling about the people that go to work for them. Emma told me. Rumors? What kind? She pointed toward a nearby study lounge and I followed her to discuss this privately. You probably know this firsthand, but the people who go to work for you, they never come back and finish their studies. They disappear, she whispered. I can see it in your eyes. You know that it's worse than that, Emma said while I averted my gaze. I thought about some of the things that had happened to the patients that I had tested with. 
I didn't want to think that we were hurting them, but I couldn't deny that it was dangerous. Some of them had already tried to off themselves and some had been successful. I had been pushing these things out of my mind, focusing on the end game for the research. But something about the way this young woman spoke made me pause and realize that I was being a monster. What is it? What do you know? Emma asked. I know that we've been dabbling in scientific discoveries that will shake the very foundation of our entire human race. Alternate dimensions that connect via endless halls. I paused to see if any of this sounded familiar and decided to make a guess about her studies. It's what Pastor Zwayne was researching almost a hundred years ago. Am I right? Emma actually looked surprised that I was so forthcoming. I think I might know something that can help you, she told me. She wrote a time and place for the South Dormitory to meet that very night. A group of us had been getting close to unlocking what Swain learned all those years ago. Bring your own calculations and I think we can reach a solid understanding of this alternate dimension. I'll admit I was stunned she knew so much about this subject. It made me think about what I had seen in that vision. Was that an alternate reality where Emma had already become a member of Osset? Yet she was transforming my patients into monsters in that nightmarish place, I thought. If I decided to help her and we discovered a way to enter the true world right here on this campus, would it cause the same inevitable reaction for her in the future? Was this what fate was? I didn't have the answers, but the questions troubled me. It felt as though an unseen force was pushing me along. I didn't even feel that my free will was existent as I realized that the only course forward would be to meet with Emma and the other Zwayne acolytes. Whatever this power is, it wants us to find it, I decided. The true world was almost within reach and new information that could reinterpret the entire universe. As a man of science, I felt there could be no other way to go. I checked the map of the campus where Emma wanted us to meet. The location was obvious. The dark church where all of this started almost a hundred years ago. I took a break at the cafeteria and took off my coat to eat a fine lunch. With my logo hidden, none of the students gave me dirty looks and it was nice to think about my days as a learner here. So much had changed since then. The reflection made me feel guilty because of how I was now using these same students for the experiments of Osset. What had I become? I lost my appetite with that thought, collected my things and I went toward the dark church. At this time of the day, the ancient structure was empty. Candles were lit through from a morning service and I saw several books lying on the ground around what looked like a magical sigil. I knew better to think that this was a mundane act of worship, so I leaned forward to get a better look at the written words. But what I saw made little sense, at least at first. All that looked to me was gibberish. As I kept repeating the words in my head, somehow the translation came to me though, as if the book was telling me what it was trying to convey. Here the disciple, Bifal eyes, in sleepless nights he bleeds. Awake in his chaos, let loose his fury. A pit formed before my eyes, the endless void ripping open to give me a glimpse into eternity. 
This was the true world. I looked around. I should have been waiting for Emma, but the new portal beckoned for me to investigate. From the shadows I saw light, beautiful and ancient. It swirled and shimmered and shook the room. Immediately the candles fell down on the ground, the fire shaking and transforming as blood and dark slime was emerging from their wax, feeding this nameless monster. And then the walls around me formed reflections of my own self. No longer was I standing in the Carbuncle Academy. No longer was I in the world that I knew and loved. This was something else, dark and mysterious. Yet it only spoke to me the truth. As these swirls of anger and blood formed a shape, its unimaginable face became clear to me. And when I saw what the mirror was showing me, I screamed. The reflection shattered into millions of pieces and I realized how foolish we had been to even step foot into this place. I saw others trapped in the labyrinth, ones that I hadn't met yet. I can only assume they came from other timelines or dimensions, wandering this place and becoming faceless monsters. They could smell my fear. I stepped forward to try and get the attention of one that looked almost human. He had cut out his own eyes and he was mumbling about like a madman. We cannot see the world beyond ours for it invites death. Every path, every direction it leads only to our extinction. He whispered as I passed by. The other creatures were feeding on themselves, crawling and making hallways of flesh as I ran through to find Emma, or to find anything that reminded me of the same reality that I came from. I saw her at last, standing like she had in that first vision, with a syringe in her hand. But she wasn't alone this time. The tunnel of flesh fell away and I was trapped in a white room with no clear dimensions. Carter stood there next to an operation chair, and beside her was an older man, perhaps in his early 90s, who greeted me cordially. You're the one we have to thank for this new discovery, or so I've heard. It's a pleasure to meet you, Dr. Wesley, he said. How do you know me? I asked. My voice sounded hoarse. The walls of this place whisper your name often. In almost every iteration of these endless corridors, your name is the one that's being chanted wherever we ask who sent them here. It would seem that the entities that control this corridor have used you and people similar to you in almost every single dimension to keep themselves fed. You were puppets pulled here by forces beyond your understanding, and now the threshold widens and a new reality will be swallowed up, he said. The experiments weren't unlocking any potential for humanity. This was always a trap, I realized. It took you long enough. Emma said as strange faceless beings strapped me down. What are you going to do with me? You don't belong here anymore. There are still other places where a harvest must take place. We can handle the workload here, and you will remain our puppet. I looked at the older man, a realization of who he was. Yours, Wayne. The one that killed those students all those years ago, I said. Killed? Heavens no. I awakened them to their full potential. They are here, part of the endless tapestry. The shared consciousness is a way for our species to live forever, James. What I've done is give them immortality. 
he cackled. Emma plunged the syringe in my neck. I will fight this. I'll find a way to save you, I told her. She looked sad. Her eyes told me that she believed it was too late. The walls of flesh began to close in. I was drowning in their vitriol and then coming up for air in the dark church. My hands were clammy and shaky as I walked away from the ritual circle. The Emma that I knew was in the doorway, a bit perplexed by my strange behavior. Dr. Wesley, are you still trying to recruit us? She asked. No, no, sweet child. You must flee from here. Only devil's work is being done here. We have to get away, I told her. Emma didn't want to leave with me that evening, and it was the last chance that I got to speak with her. I sent in my resignation to Osset the following evening as I caught a train to Clear River. They didn't seem to hold a grudge, but instead pressed forward with their work to map and understand that labyrinth undeterred. I tried again to reach out to Emma, only to learn that she had already decided to join the corporation. It feels like no matter what I've done, fate has found a way for the endless halls to grow, the doors to grow more numerous. Soon I suspect that many others will find their way into these back rooms of the mind and become trapped there. Spread the warning and stop this madness as much as you can. Please, we might not be too late. At the very least, we might be able to be prepared for what comes next. If you've got family and friends coming for dinner this holiday season, then you're already anticipating that, oh my gosh, do I have enough food type of feeling. It's not fun, but there's no need for it. And get wild grain and you always have crowd-pleasing bread, rolls, pastries, pastas, and more in your freezer. Wild grain is the first ever bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Unlike typical supermarket bread, wild grain uses a slow fermentation process that's easier on your belly, lower in sugar, and rich in nutrients and antioxidants. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. You'll never run the risk of getting bored with wild grain. They're constantly adding new seasonal and limited time special items to try. And plus for every new member, wild grain donates 6 meals to the Greater Boston Food Bank so you can eat good and do good all at the same time. All you have to do is sign up at wildgrain.com creep and choose which type of box you want to receive and how often. It's easy to reschedule, skip, or cancel. And plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off your first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com creep to start your subscription. Yeah, you heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash creep. That's wildgrain.com slash creep, or you can use promo code creep at checkout. I'm a pilot for a cargo airline. This is the most bizarre experience of my career. Written by Abdullah Delaziz. I'm a pilot for a reputed cargo airline in the U.S., I've had the most bizarre experience of my flying career and I don't know what to do. It was a normal day in Florida. I had checked my laptop for the flight schedule. I had to go from Miami to Puerto Rico and back. 
That sounded like great news to me. I could come home on the same day at least. My co-pilot for the flight was a guy named Jim. I immediately took to him during our pre-flight briefings and we stepped into our retrofitted Boeing 737. The first leg of the flight was normal with no turbulence, except for the air traffic control diverting us over Cuba to avoid a bit of stormy-looking clouds over the ocean. We missed the Bermuda Triangle, announced Jim looking at his digital map. Well, you believe in those fairy tales, I asked him. I had flown the route a couple of times before and had never noticed anything different about the so-called Bermuda Triangle. It was probably a hoax by some adults living in their parents' basement seeking attention. Oh, it's real, all right, said Jim seriously. Why do you think we were diverted over Cuba? I chuckled. Diversions happen all the time, Jim. A storm cloud is nothing paranormal. There was no time to discuss this further as we had to prepare for landing. We landed safely, the crew reloaded the plane and the ground crew started to refuel the aircraft. One of the mechanics came up to me with a frown on his face. Um, Captain, there seems to be a slight issue. A slight issue, huh? Yes, Captain, it looks like a fuel leak in one of the lines. I sighed. Company policy on suspected fuel leaks was to perform an inspection and ground the aircraft, and who knows how long that would take. I called the dispatcher back home, and after consulting with the engineering team, they gave the green light to perform the inspection. And Jim and I had a bit of lunch in the airport, and I was reading some stuff on my phone in the crew room to pass the time. Long story short, after about six hours, the mechanics told us that the plane was airworthy once again, and that we could fly back. Heck, at least no passengers were complaining to the management. It was evening and darkness had started to fall. I was a bit happy as the late flight home meant that my flight tomorrow would be rescheduled. This time, though, we were flying right over the Bermuda Triangle, and Jim wasn't happy about it. I just have this eerie sensation. Every time I fly over this, it looks so creepy in the dark. It's because of the endless ocean. It does look pitch dark outside. I joked and that's where things started to go sideways. There was a jolt and the aircraft shook. I frowned. Uh, that's some strong wind. Jim looked scared. I don't know, Captain. That didn't feel natural. At once, the 737 started to shake uncontrollably, and my heart leapt into my mouth as the aircraft had started to lose altitude. At night, you can't see a thing out of the windshield and over the ocean. It's impossible to gauge your height. Naturally, I started to scan the instruments for any indication of defects. Maybe the engineers had done something wrong. What is going on? asked Jim. I grabbed the yoke and tried to force the nose up. Uh, power back, Jim. Jim pulled the throttle back and I held the yoke with an iron grip. After a terrifying two minutes, the aircraft leveled out and both of us breathed a sigh of relief. Maybe the storm cloud earlier had caused an air pocket and it was our bad luck to stumble on it. Oh crap, said Jim looking out the window and what I saw made my blood run cold. 
At night, the white cloud cover that you normally see when flying isn't that visible and depends on the moon. But what I saw defied all explanation. The clouds below us were forming a vortex and were blood red. To my horror, the aircraft started to shudder and the clouds started spinning. I think Jim wet himself as we were being sucked in. The nose tipped towards the swirling vortex that looked like it was a portal to hell. I frantically tried to control the plane, but it was like something else had taken over. The controls were unresponsive, and we were going down fast. Jim and I exchanged a horrified look. We knew that this was it, and we were going to crash. Was this how so many countless deaths were caused? An anomaly in the weather that not even our brainiest scientists could figure out. But then something even more bizarre happened. The vortex had seemed to spit us out, and we were flying in a completely different place. It was like we had been transported to another dimension. The sky was darker and the clouds were black and red, and the air was filled with an ominous silence. I couldn't understand what was going on. Scientifically, I rejected the theory of alternate dimensions, but a horrible feeling grew in my chest. Was it real after all? What gave me the creeps even more was the land below us. It looked like the surface of Mars. What the heck just happened? Jim asked, visibly shaken. I don't know, but I think we need to get out of here fast, I replied. I tried to turn the plane around, but the controls were still unresponsive. We were trapped in this otherworldly place with no way out. To make it worse, our navigation system wasn't showing us anything and it was blank. I tried to place a call using our plane's satellite calling system, but it wouldn't connect. Yeah, we were screwed. And that's when things started to get even stranger. I saw something moving outside of the window, something that should not exist. My brain couldn't understand what it was seeing. It was like a shadow, but it had a form at the same time, and it was coming closer and closer. A gray mist started to envelop the aircraft. It was almost as if we were flying into a cloud. Only the clouds here were black and red. Jim, do you see that? I asked, my voice shaking. He looked out the window and his eyes widened in terror. Yeah, what is that? The shadowy figure was now just inches away from the plane. It was like it was trying to get inside. I could feel a cold breeze coming through the window, even though the plane was still flying. It was dark and gray and didn't have a proper shape, but it reminded me of the grim reaper that you see in some storybooks. Cold drops of sweat formed on my forehead as the entity or whatever that thing was formed a long finger with a pointed claw and tapped on the window. We both screamed in terror as the figure suddenly disappeared. But then we heard a voice. A voice that sounded like it was coming from inside of the plane. I've been waiting for you. Jim and I looked at each other, both of us paralyzed with fear. Who's there? I asked, my voice barely above a whisper, my bravado gone. No one answered, but we could feel the presence in the cockpit. A presence that was not human. The already cold cockpit got colder and I was paralyzed in fear, too scared to turn around. 
I saw a gray mist fill the cockpit and that was the last thing that I remember before blacking out. When I came to, we were back on Earth and flying over the place where we had encountered the portal or whatever that vortex had been. The rest of the journey was in silence and I have no idea how Jim and I managed to land that aircraft safely. Jim handed in his resignation on the same day, but I decided to stay. We recalled the event perfectly, but decided to not mention it to anyone. I like my job, and I don't want to be sent to the therapist, or even worse, have my license revoked. I drove home, gripping the steering wheel of my Ford pickup in fear, not daring to look behind me. I stopped at a fast food joint and ate in the pickup itself. Once I went home, I couldn't shake the feeling that something was still watching me. I had lived alone for the majority of my life, and I had never experienced this feeling before. I went to bed immediately after a shower, but I couldn't make myself fall asleep. After an hour of tossing and turning, I managed to sleep, but my dreams were plagued by the shadowy entity who laughed in my face about not believing in the supernatural, and how I would have to pay penance for it. I dreamt that I was trapped in the other dimension and that I had no escape. I woke up, my pillows soaked in sweat despite the air conditioning. I tried to call Jim, only to realize that I didn't have his number. I ate some cornflakes, wondering whom to call. Scrolling through my contacts and then it hit me. I would call Jackson. Jackson was an investigator in the National Transportation Safety Board and I had met the guy earlier in the airport. He was a loner like me and we had hung out a couple of times, watching the latest Marvel movies. He wouldn't think that I was slowly going insane anyway, so I called him. Jackson, a guy who was usually light, became serious and told me to stay where I was and to not leave the house. He promised to be there within two hours with his team. I heaved a sigh of relief and finished the last of my coffee and realized that my laptop was in my room. I wanted to check if the company had changed my flight. There was no way that I wanted to fly today until Jackson had sorted this mess out. I went into my room and the door slammed closed behind me. An icy feeling settled in my veins as I looked around. None of the windows were open so it couldn't have been the wind. I crept forward only to stop in my tracks as a gray mist formed in my room, the same gray mist that formed outside our aircraft. I stood paralyzed in fear as a shape started to form out of the gray mist, the shape that formed outside our aircraft yesterday. I stood paralyzed as the thing shot what looked like chains made out of dark gray mist at me and they wrapped around my ankles. The searing pain jolted me into my senses as I yanked my feet out of its clutches. I screamed and turned open the door, hoping that it wasn't locked and thankfully it opened. I closed the door behind me as the thing slammed against it, letting out a guttural howl. I fumbled for my keys, ran into the garage and climbed into my pickup. I pulled out onto the driveway and stared at my house. Had that thing followed me back from yesterday? If so, maybe it had gotten to Jim as well. My ankles weren't faring any better, they looked like they had gotten burnt, and the skin was red and bruised where the chains had touched me. 
In hindsight, I should have gotten an ice pack for my fridge. I got on the internet and was searching for forums where people have had similar experiences, and I stumbled across this one. Maybe you guys can help me out until Jackson comes. I'm too scared to go back inside. That thing didn't look like it wanted to chat. First of all, thank you all so much for your advice. You have no idea how comforting it was to me to sit in that pickup reading all your advice instead of driving myself crazy. My uncle was killing me so I decided to take a bottle of water that I had stored in my pickup and what a cloth that I found inside. I wrapped it over my ankle and that gave me a bit of relief. I contemplated it driving away many, many times, but I always seemed rooted to the spot, my hands refusing to start my pickup. Anyway, after many tense hours of waiting, I finally spotted Jackson's car pull into the driveway, followed by another official-looking Cadillac. Jackson exited the car along with his team who were carrying a duffel bag. I got out of my pickup and I shook his hand. Thanks for coming all the way out here, man, I said, pumping his hand up and down. Jackson nodded towards the two men who were getting out of the Cadillac, and they were quite obviously someone from the government, complete with black suits, ties, and sunglasses. One of the guys had a thick mustache while the other one looked as if he was devoid of any emotion. What a shocker. They stood, waiting for Jackson to do the introductions. Right, so, guys, this is Chris. Chris, these are my two colleagues from the government. Let me guess, I said, feeling a bit bolder. FBI. I can neither confirm nor deny that statement, said the guy with the mustache. Anyway, I'm Daniel and the other guy's John. Yeah, right, like those were the real names anyway. I'm assuming Jackson would have told you everything, I said, gesturing to my house which Jackson's team were now taking photos of. Daniel nodded. He did. So, do you deal with these types of, um, things? I asked him. The reply was the usual. I can neither confirm nor deny that statement. I can make a coffee if you come in, I said looking at Jackson who shook his head. No, Chris, you can't go back inside until we have a look. All right, I said. I need to see if I have been rescheduled for my roster. Don't worry, said John speaking for the first time. We have spoken to your airline captain. An icy finger trailed along my spine. What had these bozos from the government told the airline? Luckily, Jackson saw the look on my face. Don't worry, Chris. We told them that you're doing some work for us. I breathed a sigh of relief. Any news about Jim, the co-pilot? Jim has left the state, said Daniel, shaking his head. We have him under observation as well. Well, whatever you guys are doing, take long, I asked. I didn't want to stay in my driveway and announce to the entire neighborhood that something was up with my house. Jackson looked gloom. We need to take some energy readings here. I think you should go and book yourself a hotel for today. I sighed. Can I at least pack? The suits shook their heads at once. No, Captain. Leave everything as it is. After a final handshake, I got into my pickup and went to the town, 
searching for a hotel to spend the day in. I had some lunch from a restaurant and checked into a newly built three-star. The room was okay, but as I surveyed the room, I had an unsettling feeling. Don't get me wrong, one of the perks of being an airline pilot is that we get to stay in amazing hotels, but I never experienced this feeling that made the hair on the back of my head stand up. It was as if I were not alone. I shrugged it off and I opened up the curtains. I had no illusions, I was technically trapped here until the G-men told me everything was okay. Jackson had given me a device that he told me to use in an emergency, whatever that meant. I looked at the phone-like device that looked very much like an old Nokia. Maybe I was supposed to press the green call button and the phone would do its magic. Luckily, my phone had full charge, so I closed the curtains, hopped into the comfy bed and decided to watch something on Netflix to pass the time. I nearly dropped the phone as I opened up the app, to be greeted by a picture of a woman smiling like a maniac. I browsed through the movie collection, only to be greeted by horror movie after horror movie. I threw the phone across the pillow and decided to go to sleep. As my head hit the pillow, I was greeted by that thing. It covered me with its shadowy presence and laughed in my face as I struggled to escape that dimension. I tried my best to at least see what it looked like, but the only thing I could see were the eyes. The eyes that glowed like they were burning coal. I tried to wake myself up and just as I had had that thought, the entity smiled. Or at least I thought that it had smiled. I woke up suddenly, sweating profusely and tried to move my hand to wipe my forehead, when to my horror, my hands would not move. I tried to move my legs, but it seemed like they were made out of lead. My heart leapt out of my chest as I looked at myself and saw that my entire body was covered with gray smoke, only it didn't feel like smoke, more like if lead were a heavy liquid. Something told me to look at the armchair and let out a whimper of fear. Sitting on it was the thing itself and this time I saw it properly for the first time. Its cloak was made of the same grey mist that covered me and its face was the thing that puzzled me. The face it didn't have a form. Just the burning coal eyes and the mouth with dark grey lips. The thing smiled revealing jagged sharp teeth that didn't resemble anything human. Chris, it moaned. The voice sounded like dragging nails on a chalkboard. I tried to cover my ears, only to be reminded that this thing had me in its power. My usually gruff voice came out like the squeak of a mouse. What do you want? I shuddered as the thing smiled, showing me even more of its teeth that looked like they were suspiciously covered in blood. Can't you remember? No, no, I'm sorry. I should have slept with that dang emergency phone near me. This thing was going to give me a heart attack soon. Oh, that's too bad. I won't lie, I nearly wet myself as the thing got up from the armchair in the room and came near me. But something was happening to its face. It was changing into the face of... Kate? Open up! Yelled a voice from outside of the room. NTSB officials, open up. The thing hissed and then vanished, taking the gray smoke with it. 
The door unlocked and thank God for the hotels these days having emergency overrides. And Jackson walked in looking anxious. What happened? He asked me and I sat up and looked at him. It came again. He looked at me sheepishly. Sorry Chris, that device I gave you to contact me is designed to send a remote alert to us when it detects strange energy. And we keyed it to the anomaly that we found in your house. Speaking of that, I said, opening a soft drink that I found in the minibar. What did you guys find anyway? There's an energy fluctuation in your house, mainly your bedroom. But I want to know more about this entity that visited you today. I told Jackson the entire story and he nodded. God, my mistake. I think it's attached itself to something that you took on that flight. Dude, I stared at him. That could even be my house keys or the keys to my truck. Yeah, that's the thing. Jackson, that thing, it looked a bit like Kate. Jackson paled. I knew that I had him. But before that, let me tell you about Kate. Kate was an absolute goddess of a woman that I met when I had just started working for the airline. She was a pilot herself and worked for a charter airline. I saw her in the airport restaurant and I was immediately in love. I approached her a bit shyly and asked her out and to my great surprise, it worked. We started meeting up for a few coffees and we decided to date. I loved her a lot and I knew that she would be the perfect woman for me and I the perfect man for her. Well, that was until she had vanished. I don't need to tell you how devastated I was. I had never had a successful relationship in high school or college, one that lasted for a long time anyway and to see Kate disappear off the face of the earth, well it was heartbreaking. I went to the police but apparently, a boyfriend reporting an adult missing isn't enough. She's an adult they said. Her employer had no clue about her disappearance and was concerned. The police agreed to put an alert but nothing came of it after both of us got involved. Months turned into years and so did my hope. Jackson, I said a bit more forcefully. He turned to the window. You're going to hate me after this. The doorbell rang and in came John. He put a hand on Jackson. John had been listening in our conversation. Typical government. Twelve years ago, the NTSB was alerted to a missing aircraft over the Bermuda Triangle. I gripped my armchair tightly. The pilot of that aircraft was Kate. I looked at Jackson. You covered it up. You've been covering up every single disappearance in the Triangle, haven't you? I saw red. I stood up, as if that would do any good, but I was brought back to Earth by Jackson. Help us then. What? John cleared his throat. Help us, Captain. Join us to find Kate and solve the mystery once and for all. Of course, I agreed. The unnamed agency spoke to my airline who put me on paid leave and told me not to bring anything with me, including my clothes. My pickup key, house key, and tack, even glasses would stay behind. It would only be me. Yeah, this included my phone and laptop. The agency, whoever they were, paid my hotel bill, gave me some new clothes, and even got me some new glasses. They even bought me a new phone, and not a crappy one at that. I'm still in the hotel currently, and I'll be leaving shortly. 
Jackson and his team don't want to take the risk of flying so it's 8 hours over land. I'm going to fall asleep on the way, it's almost 7 o'clock here anyway. I haven't seen even a slight sign of the thing since Jackson and them had left. That was a good sign, right? But only if I knew how wrong I was. I reached into my wallet to take out my credit cards. Yeah, Jackson wanted those as well. His instructions were to cancel them and get new ones posted to some weird-looking address. I had effectively given up all my worldly possessions to this unnamed agency. My fingers brushed against a talisman, an object that brought tears to my eyes. Kate had given me it a long time ago, saying that her mom considered it good luck and to those of you who want to know, I hadn't met her parents yet. She was planning on introducing me to them later, well, until she disappeared. Anyway, as I took out the talisman, I felt a searing pain in my hand, almost as if it were on fire. I clutched my hand and I dropped the thing on the floor, where the gray mist was leaking from it into the real world. In a panic, I quickly called Jackson. Daniel barged into my room. I was to have no privacy, it seemed, and the minute that he came in, the gray mist miraculously disappeared. Daniel nodded. I'm going to stay in the room if you don't mind, and we'll take care of the talisman. Yeah, whatever, man, I need to wash my face a bit. I went into the washroom and a strong sense of foreboding greeted me. I stopped suddenly. Was that a gray mist leaking through the ventilation duct? I slowly turned towards the mirror and nearly shat myself. The thing was right behind me, smiling with an all-too-wide grin. I quickly grabbed the hairdryer. Yeah, I know, but that was the only thing that I could find to defend myself, but there was nobody there. What the heck? I looked in the mirror and to my utter disbelief, the thing appeared to be behind me in the reflection. Daniel, in here. Daniel rushed to the washroom, but predictably, the thing smiled smugly and vanished. Daniel had a very unwelcome explanation. Uh, sorry, Captain, the entity appears to be attached to something of yours. Is it the talisman? Daniel frowned. No, Captain, we can't say for sure, but I think it's something in this room. Can't you find out which it is? Uh, no, Captain, not until we test every single thing you took on that plane. Yeah, right, I can't even take a dump alone without that thing bothering me. Jackson agreed to move the timeline up and we leave in 10 minutes. I have a strong feeling the suits won't let me contact anyone once I'm inside their facility, so you won't be hearing from me for a while. I'm going to find out what happened to Kate, even if it means walking into hell myself. Jackson and his friends from the NTSB took me to an undisclosed facility in God knows where. I'm not joking, I spent the better part of these seven-hour journey napping and guess what? That thing didn't plague me at all. I guess the theory of it being attached to something I took on that flight was true after all. Anyway, we arrived at the office of the NTSB. The security had a look at Jackson and the suit's IDs and after giving me a one over, my driver's license was under their custody anyways. They waved us through. Instead of going through the front door like normal people would, the crew went into a subterranean garage. They parked the Cadillac and we went into an elevator, and Jackson surprised me by inserting a card into a card reader. 
The lift knew where to go as it started to descend now. The digital display didn't indicate the floor numbers. I had a sneaking suspicion that we were going to a highly secretive facility that only a few people knew about and I was proven right as the elevator doors opened. We piled into a dimly lit lobby and were greeted by a big made man. Welcome team Bravo, I see you've returned with our guest. Yes boss, said Daniel. The boss smiled back at Jackson. Can't say I'm surprised, congrats on the promotion Jackson. Thank you, boss. And do forgive me, Captain, he said looking at me. We were unable to shake anyone's hands as it can cause issues with the energy fluctuations. And you can call me boss. Alright, boss, I said, trying to be a part of the team. The boss was satisfied with our answers and nodded at Jackson, who no doubt was the leader of Team Bravo. Jackson told us to follow him and went down a corridor that had several doors set into it. We opened one and were greeted by an apartment. Did I forget to mention that there were no windows by any chance? I guessed that we were underground. We, or rather the G-men, dumped their equipment on the floor and faced me. Jackson raised his hands. You might be having a lot of questions that will answer. Fine, I said, first of all. Who are you guys? And Daniel was the one that answered. We are a division of the NTSB known as Edo or the Extraordinary Divisions Organization and we answer directly to the Pentagon. We research anomalies reported by anybody focusing on transportation. I turned to Jackson. Hold on buddy, I'm pretty sure you were just an NTSB inspector last time that I checked. Jackson shrugged. Now that was until I got promoted. Heck, that's why we didn't tell you anything until you signed the NDA. Yeah, well, I just broke it. John opened up the duffel bag and took out a pack of what looked like a computer monitor. Truth be told, Captain, we're very, very interested in the Bermuda Triangle and this is the first time we've experienced anyone with, um, after effects. So what's the plan? I asked him sitting on the sofa. The G-men shrugged. We're on quarantine. We need to be in this decontamination chamber for a few hours until the boss man briefs us. Wow, I was stuck with these guys for another couple of hours. Jackson assured me that his old team was taking care of the belongings that I had left behind, and that I would only have to ask to get something provided to me. This was early in the morning, so I decided to take a nap. The apartment had two rooms and I decided to bunk with Jackson. I slept soundly without the thing disturbing my peace. We were called down for breakfast and the boss informed us that we were to be present at 9.30 in the briefing room sharp. That was fine with me. 9.30 saw us in a normal conference room set up with a smart board and a couple of chairs. The four of us, along with the boss, whose name no one knew, and a couple of people in what looked like military uniforms were present at the briefing. The boss started to speak at first, his deep voice resonating in the small room. Ladies and gentlemen, as you are all aware by now, our primary focus is the Bermuda Triangle. The smart board flickered to life, highlighting the area on the map. The pilot, Captain Chris, and his first officer, Jim, of Redacted Airlines, experienced something that interests us greatly. Captain, why don't you explain what happened? 
I stood up and recounted the story, secretly hoping that nobody laughed at me or that I was secretly in a psych hospital. Everybody's faces, however, displayed either horror or shock. Jackson cleared his throat. For the record, everyone, Jim recounts no sightings of the entity except the initial encounter. We have concluded that the entity has anchored itself to a possession of the captains that he took on that flight. I raised my hand. Captain? Wait, you government types seriously believe this? The boss smiled and motioned a guy in a lab coat, a scientist, to speak to us. The scientist stood up and went to the podium. Alright folks, to answer your question, Captain, we believe in the laws of energy thoroughly. We have observed that there is a slight anomaly in the area of the Bermuda Triangle, in terms of this energy. When Jackson here reported your incident to his superiors, we were ordered to step in. We have found that the energy signature of your house is different to these surroundings, suggesting that something extraordinary is going on. So nothing paranormal? I asked him cautiously. The scientist smiled. I'm afraid not, Captain. It's all to do with the energy. Well, then what about the flight then? That place we went to? I asked him. Don't blame me. I came here to find answers. The scientist looked a bit less sure of himself. That is still under observation, to be honest. The boss motioned for the scientist to sit down and dominated the podium once again. What we are interested in is this entity that you spoke about, Captain. We have been observing the triangle for the past few years and yet, we haven't observed such energy spikes as we are now. We are testing your belongings for traces of residual energy, but it is still under progress. For the benefit of Team Bravo, said another military-type man, we managed to borrow a satellite that is recording every single thing that's going on in that area. We will keep observing the energy fluctuations and brief you once we're done. That's it, gentlemen. The briefing left me confused and tossing and turning in my bunk bed. Was there such a huge amount of energy that could create another world? I didn't buy it for a second. The science team had a breakthrough after two weeks. The higher-ups were pressing the boss. They needed the satellite back. I don't know how to explain this, he said calling us to the office, but the talisman seems to have another energy signature emitting from it. Kate believed in it a lot, I said a bit angrily. She should have worn that thing when she went over the triangle the day she went missing. Maybe she would have survived. I poured over the NTSB records for the incident, by the way and nothing on that three-page folder told me anything useful, other than the time and day she had gone on the flight which I bought the attention of the boss. He surveyed the four of us. I want you, Team Bravo, to take up the challenge of finding out what goes on in the triangle. Our analysts have informed me that on the night of the full moon, at precisely 9.39pm, a sharp spike only for a fraction of a second at a particular point in the triangle occurs. Let me guess, boss, says Daniel. It coincided with the captain's flight path. The boss pointed his pen at Daniel. boy, Sir, began John a bit fearfully. You're not suggesting that we fly into the triangle, are you? The boss grinned. But I am. 
Things escalated pretty fast from that point onward. The full moon was approaching in a week and we had to be prepared. Strangely enough, the talisman didn't burn me when I held it this time. Leading Jackson to suggest that maybe something that I had in my wallet at the time was triggering it. The science team had several opinions that the triggers were the stuff that I kept in my wallet. Anyway, we exercised and geared up as the military team would say for that day as it loomed closer. The team would be the four of us, three grunts and the two pilots. The boss and the science team would run the ground ops from the base. Oh, and before you ask, no, I still had no idea where we were. I slept on the way mostly. I suspect the G-men might have spiked my coffee, but at least I got good free food here. On the day of departure, we loaded our backpacks, double-checked our communications equipment, and ran a bunch of last-minute checks. My jaw dropped when the boss led us to the hangar. We were to fly on one of the aircrafts in development, something that defied all explanation. It looked like an alien craft with its slim and sleek design. It looked like a cross between a plane and a helicopter, and I admired its stealthy-looking design. The boss was nervous. Uh, the Pentagon wasn't happy about loaning this bad boy. Try not to get a scratch on it, huh? The interior was exactly like the exterior of the aircraft. Plush leather seats that looked like they belonged on a luxury jet awaited us and of course, me being me couldn't resist checking out the cockpit. Let's be very clear here, there are two types of pilots in their late 40s like me. Pilots who hate computerized modern pilot cockpits and prefer the old style gauge type systems. And the other ones who love the computerization and digital screens. That was me. For the life of me, I couldn't understand why on earth anyone would want to read off the gauges that took ages to find. Anyway, I was blown away by the sheer design of it all. Large digital displays surrounded the pilots, who had joysticks to control the aircraft. I gave the pilots the thumbs up and went to join the team. After a final comm check of our gear, we got the all clear to take off. The takeoff was extremely smooth and once in the air, the pilot grinned at us. I don't know if anybody told you, but this baby can reach almost three times the speed of sound. So buckle up, gents, and we're flying at 40,000 feet to avoid the other aircraft. Wow, said Daniel clapping his hands. We'll be there in no time then. I looked at the team. I had gotten to know them well during the two weeks and Daniel was an outgoing guy. Jackson was, well, Jackson, but John spoke only when necessary and that wasn't much. Anyways, once we had reached our cruising altitude, Jackson sent the grunts to the cockpit. There was something that he wanted to tell us and only us. He indicated that we switch off our comms and said in a grave voice. I'm not buying that energy explanation for a second. There's something sinister going on there and we needed to stop at all costs. Got it? He looked hard at me and I nodded. Roger. The other men followed with John simply nodding. The NTSB had provided us with what they called energy blasters, which shot superheated plasma at anything that it encountered. I had a feeling that the aircraft was fitted with something equally frightening as well. And in case you were wondering, I being a private citizen, was not allowed to carry the firearm, but I had the talisman with me.
something equally dangerous. I noticed a change in the pitch of the engines and the pilots called over the intercom stating that we were a couple of miles away from insertion into the triangle. We buckled our seatbelts and waited for the inevitable. The aircraft jolted suddenly to the right and we looked at each other in grim determination. This was it. I looked outside as the aircraft suddenly righted itself. Wow, said Jackson looking mesmerized by the clouds starting to form a vortex slowly spinning and gaining speed. I looked at my watch. It was 9.39. The aircraft started to shudder as the pilots engaged the corrective actions. In my defense, I didn't have the privilege of practicing this maneuver 1,000 times in the simulator when I did it. What the heck is that? shrieked one of the grunts. We looked outside and sure enough, the portal to hell was forming once again. All the pilot said was, Brace yourself, we're going in. The nose of the aircraft tipped towards the vortex as the engine screamed bloody murder. We shot like a bullet towards the vortex and I closed my eyes. The shuddering stopped and we were in the calm once again. Jackson was speechless. The energy spike must be creating a rip in space-time. It looks like hell, said Daniel shuddering. Can you control this thing? I asked the pilots who looked gloomily at me. The controls aren't responding anymore. We've lost contact with ground, said a grunt who was updating everybody back at base. At once, the mist started to form outside the plane and, as discussed earlier, the pilots eased it onto the red, rocky soil. We waited in silence until the mist intensified and the temperature dropped rapidly. No one was ready for what happened next. Of course, the thing appeared inside the plane. The thing didn't care about the rifles that were aimed at it. It just smiled, showing off those pointy teeth. Oh, you came back, it said. State your purpose, commanded Jackson forcefully. The thing looked at him. Chris shall remain here. I need him. Where is Kate? At the mention of the word, something happened to the thing. Its featureless face changed into the sweet face of Kate, with its burning coal eyes turning into her deep blue eyes. I was at a loss for words. Kate, I said, almost running to hug her. Daniel held on an arm, stopping me. Oh, Chris, darling, said Kate, tears starting to form in her eyes. You need to leave, please. This entity will take you too. I can't leave you. I whispered. The talisman, said John's voice. I looked at the usually emotionless guy and was shocked to see his face. He looked sad and almost looked like he was fighting back tears. This was the first time that I had seen him express any sort of emotion. Hey, gimme, said Kate. I could see that she was fighting to control her human body. This thing feeds off humans, Chris. Every soul who comes to this dimension is doomed. Please give me the talisman. Free us all. I handed her the talisman with shaking fingers and screamed a cry of agony as she plunged it into her chest. John fainted on the floor of the plane, surprising Daniel. There was a guttural roar as the dark gray mist poured out of Kate's chest and the thing appeared, its eyes burning with hate. 
but the talisman had done its job. The thing faded into oblivion, but not before giving me a parting souvenir. As it tried to grab a hold of me, a smoky tentacle wrapped around me that felt like lava on my skin. Unsurprisingly, we tried to figure out a way to get back into our dimension, until Jax had noticed that the portal was open. The pilots used the vector thruster engines to turn us around and we were back on Earth. Oh, and you want to know what that souvenir the thing gave me was now, don't you? I was proud of my skin, but contact with the thing in it had given me a grayish mark on my forearm, where the tentacle had made contact, almost like a brand. After getting debriefed and warned not to share my story with anyone, I wanted to find out what John's involvement was with this. I asked him just as he had dropped me off at my house. He looked at me like I was the dumbest person on earth. Kate's my sister. If you haven't finished your holiday shopping yet, don't panic. There's still time to find incredible original gifts with the help of Uncommon Goods. UncommonGoods.com has the absolute best gifts for everyone in your life. We're talking moms, dads, teens, in-laws, besties, your one and only. And it's not stuff that you can find just anywhere. Uncommon Goods has unique and creative gifts, often handmade by independent artists and makers. So, skip the gifts that scream last minute and find something truly original at Uncommon Goods. A few of my favorite things that I found from their site, one being the birthstone ornament. A Christmas ornament themed to your birthstone, pretty cool. And a grilled personal pizza maker. This compact little baker makes a brick oven style pizza right in your grill. It's simple, easy, delicious. Throw your pizza inside and put it on the grill and you're good to go. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the US. They have the most meaningful, out of the ordinary gifts anywhere. And to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash mrcreeps. That's uncommongoods.com slash mrcreeps for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. When I was in high school, two of my classmates mysteriously died. Written by Sir Ulrich von Lichten. It started with my 10th grade English teacher, Mr. Baldwin, showing up late for class. Before his arrival, several of my classmates had made the usual joke about being legally allowed to go home if Mr. Baldwin didn't show up after 15 minutes. That's right. Kids have been making that joke going as far back as the 80s. But after 15 minutes and Mr. Baldwin still hadn't shown up, a sense of unease started to creep its way into the class. No one laughed or got out of their desks. We simply sat there and watched the clock tick away. I guess teachers play hooky too, my best friend Owen said to me. Owen Fielder was a sardonic and sometimes aloof boy with dark hair and a fair appearance that I was envious of. What do you suppose English teachers do when they play hooky Pete? You think Mr. Baldwin is curled up with a dictionary somewhere? It's not just him. I said, suppressing a laugh and hooking a thumb behind me. There was an empty desk there. 
but Larson never came today either. Hal Larson was a quiet boy. He was genuinely good-humored, but always so quiet. I had run into Hal outside of school over the weekend, and he had said something strange, but I tried not to think about it. No one had showed much concern about his absence. After all, students were absent all the time. Kids got sick or they played hooky. But teachers, well, teachers were always there now, weren't they? And when they weren't, there was always a substitute in their place, ready to prove themselves. Maybe they're both dead. A boy sitting behind me said, his name was Caleb Summers. Not that I would mind. One less boring teacher and one less numbnuts in the world. No, I wouldn't mind that at all. Good riddance, have a nice trip, see you next fall. Shut up, rat boy, Owen said. Once in eighth grade, a rat had found its way into the school. When Caleb saw it, he screamed a high-pitched scream and nearly fainted. Since then, Owen had gotten to calling him rat boy. Normally, I wouldn't be one for name-calling, but Caleb Ratboy Summers was a shrewd and nasty kid, and he had a tendency to get on people's nerves. He was like a mosquito that kept buzzing at you and wouldn't stop, no matter how many times you swatted him away. The nickname was well-suited for him. I'll bite me, fielder, Caleb said, and he gave Owen the finger. I would rather bite into a cyanide capsule, Owen said flipping the bird in return. You shouldn't say things like that, Caleb. Another boy said. He had a not-so-subtle southern drawl that I always found endearing. His name was Chester Higby. What if they really got hurt? Oh, screw off, you hick, Caleb said. I'm sure they're both fine, probably making out somewhere. The banter eventually died out and a terrible silence had taken over the class. Then approximately 35 minutes after class was supposed to have started, Mr. Baldwin stepped into the room. His face was pale and sweaty and he looked nothing like the cool and hip English teacher that I was used to seeing at the start of every day. He looked tired, so very, very tired. Hey guys, Mr. Baldwin said in a pallid voice. Hey guys. Normally, Mr. Baldwin would start the day with a hearty morning class, and whenever we didn't respond enthusiastically enough, he would say it in an even louder voice. I said good morning, class. I don't know any other way of saying this, so I'll just come out with it, Mr. Baldwin said. Your classmate, your classmate, Hal Larson, is dead. I was just in a meeting with the rest of the faculty. We're canceling school for the day. You're welcome to use the phone in this room or in the main office to call your parents if you need to. We'll also have grief support later this week for those of you that need that. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm just so very sorry. A sort of dumb shock had taken over our class. Mr. Baldwin started sobbing and it was weird seeing him cry. You never saw teachers cry. Occasionally, you saw them at the supermarket, and that was strange enough, but you never saw them cry. No one said anything for what felt like an eternity, and then a girl started sobbing as well. Other students had similar reactions, and some asked Mr. Baldwin what had happened, but he wouldn't say. But most of us just hung our heads in a kind of numb sorrow. 
This was the first time that I had experienced the death this close. Sure, I had distant relatives that died, but I saw Hal Larson every day of the week. And now, now he was dead. It felt unreal. I thought the encounter that I had with Larson outside of school. I had tried to forget it, but it was hard to forget now. The memory rang loud in my head. Pete, you're not going to believe it. Larson had said, running up to me a couple of days ago. His face was sweaty and he was more energetic than usual, and he had a very intense look in his eyes. I just saw my dead dog man and he was glowing. He was glowing, I missed him so much. I saw him, I swear it. Before I could even respond, he ran off. I shook away the memory and I looked back at Caleb. When our eyes met, a defensive look came over his face. What are you looking at, Pete? It's not like I didn't think he was actually. But his voice trailed off and he simply looked away in shame. Of course, rumors immediately started flying about how Hal Larson had died. The sort of low and nasty kind of gossip that only high schoolers can make. It wasn't until the evening news that we found out more details. Hal Larson's body had been found near a pond, completely lifeless. There had been no signs that he had drowned and there were no signs of a struggle. The police said that they were treating the case as a potential homicide, but they weren't ruling out drugs or some kind of illness. It was all the information that we were given. School resumed the next day, but it was anything but a normal day. The school had brought over grief counselors and experts who spoke to us at length about dealing with death and letting it all out. The police came as well and asked if anybody knew anything. I told them about my encounter with Hal, what he had said about his dog, but the officers just looked at me with raised eyebrows and then dismissed me, like I was some annoying child. In between classes, as kids walked to and fro in the hallway, more rumors spread. Aliens, man. It was the aliens that got him. He obviously OD'd. I got a cousin that OD'd. Hey, you got any more pills? What if there's really a killer out there? Oh Jesus, oh Jesus. I swear that I saw him the other day. He said that he saw his dead dog. Isn't that kind of strange? He said his dog was glowing. I don't know. He was into some weird stuff, man. He was such a sweet guy. He was horrible. He was in with the wrong people. Oh Jesus, oh Jesus, what if I'm next? It's wrong. Chester said in one of her afternoon classes. All these terrible things people are saying about Larson. It just ain't right. Savages, Owen said. The guy hasn't been cold for more than 24 hours and people are piling on him. It makes me want to hurl. But what do you think happened? I asked sincerely. I hated the gross rumors as well, but there was a part of me that deeply wanted to know why Larson had died. His death was a total mystery. It was almost as if the life had been sucked from his body. I had told Owen and Chester about my encounter with Larson, and neither of them could make any sense of it. I don't know, Owen said sadly. I don't want to know. I hope it was peaceful, Chester said. I hope whatever happened, he went peacefully. Nobody dies peacefully, 
Caleb muttered under his breath. Shut up, rat boy, Owen said, turning toward Caleb in disgust. Nobody asked you and stop saying creepy stuff like that. And Caleb made a face at Owen but said nothing else. It seemed to me that he was still dejected and ashamed of the comments that he had made the other day, back when we all thought that Larson was alive. To make matters worse for Caleb, more and more people were finding out about what he had said. Uh, maybe they're both dead. Not that I would mind, no, I wouldn't mind that at all. High school gossip was like a terrible game of telephone. Somebody said one thing and that one thing was stretched and pulled and changed until it no longer resembled the original thing that it once was. Words were like wind, always flowing and changing direction. It was Summers, man. It was Summers that did Larson in. You hear what Summers said. He said, I wish I had killed Larson. No, no, he said that he did kill Larson. Didn't you hear? Summers hated Larson. He had been planning this for years. Yeah, Summers is messed up in the head. He's a freak. Glowing said his dog was glowing. Well, how did Summers do it? Oh, God, what if I'm next? Oh, Summers is going to get his. It didn't matter what Caleb actually said. His words had taken on a new life, and words eventually reached the adults about Caleb's little joke, or one of the telephone diversions of it, and the police came to speak with him. Nothing came out of it, legally at least, but from that point on, whenever Caleb had walked the hallways, people would step away from him, like he smelled or he had the plague. People would sneer and somebody pushed him into a locker. Caleb Summers had become a leper. I almost feel sorry for Summers, Owen said one day after school. We were watching Caleb leave the school and some kids were heckling him. Almost. Oh, come on, Owen, I said. Caleb, he sucks, but he doesn't deserve this. Doesn't deserve it, Owen said irritated. This is Caleb Summers that we're talking about here. The same Caleb Summers that laughed at Molly Hansen when her cat went missing. The same Caleb Summers that called Darren Lowe a you-know-what. The same Caleb Summers that cut Larry McDaniel's bicycle tires. As far as I'm concerned, Ratboy is getting what he deserves. I guess, I said. But he didn't have anything to do with Larson. This is high school, Pete, Owen said matter-of-factly. So Ratboy will get hazed a little bit. No one actually believes he's the killer. By next week, people will have forgotten all about him. I could do nothing but shrug and hope that that was the case. A vigil was held for Hal Larson on Friday night. It was a beautiful ceremony that took place in the high school's athletic field. Larson's parents spoke and many of his teachers and classmates were scheduled to speak as well. Everybody lit candles and the whole field was bright with little orange flames. I was with Owen and Chester near the back. I hope I never see my mom cry like that, Chester said. God, that was hard to take. I feel so bad for his parents. I don't know if my mom would be happy or sad if I died, Owen said. I couldn't tell if he was joking. It was hard to tell sometimes. I wonder if I would get a vigil like this if I died, I thought morbidly. Mr. Baldwin had taken the stage and was giving a speech, but his voice had faded away into the background because of what I saw. 
I saw three people who were walking away from the vigil. Even in the dark, I could tell one of them was unmistakably Caleb. The other two figures were leading Caleb into the school. Now forcing him was more like it. I nudged Owen and Chester and I pointed at the three figures moving in the dark. Oh, this is not good, Chester said. Yeah, we have to check it out, I said urgently. Ah, do we have to, Owen said, but eventually sighed. All right, let's go. The three of us put out our candles and made our way to the school entrance and slipped inside the building. We walked down the school's darkened hallways. It was eerie being in school after dark. It didn't take long to find them. They were in the gymnasium. It was the screaming that gave them away. When we walked into the gym, Caleb was on the ground in tears and his nose was bleeding. Two students were standing over him. One of them was kicking Caleb, kicking him hard. The student who wasn't doing the kicking was Alan Hawks. He was the quarterback of our football team. Alan, in a lot of ways, was unlike most jocks. He was an all-around decent guy who was nice to everybody. He hung out with the other jocks, but he would also play cards with the nerds. He had a vast comic book collection, aced every test, and he could sling a football 60 yards without even trying. He was a total boy scout, but tonight he towered over Caleb like some sort of vengeful Greek god. The other boy was Trevor Madison. If Alan was Superman, Trevor was his Lex Luthor. He was fond of leather jackets and he smoked on the regular. He didn't care about school spirit or football games and he flunked at almost everything. I don't think that he had ever read a comic book in his life. He was the one who was kicking Caleb. Alan Hux and Trevor Madison were both on two opposite ends of the high school spectrum and seeing the two of them standing together was a surreal experience. Superman and Lex Luthor had joined forces. There had been so much heat on Caleb this week, so much frustration taken out on him, and now it had all come to this boiling point where two students stood over him like a pair of lions ready to pounce on a gazelle. What is going on here? I said. Alan and Trevor turned around. Caleb looked up, but there was no relief on his face. <laughs> what does it look like? Trevor Madison said, and there was a maddening gleam in his eyes. We're giving Summers what he deserves. I, I didn't do it, Caleb said out of breath. Shut up, and Madison gave him another kick. Hey, stop that, I yelled. Come on, Alan, this is insane, he didn't do anything. What about you, Fielder? Alan said darkly, and his face, which was normally so cheery, was a cold slab of stone. You ate Summers as much as anybody. You don't think he deserves a butt-kicking? I think... Owen said and there was a slight hesitation in his voice. He looked at Caleb's pathetic form on the ground and gave another sigh. I think Pete's right. Much as I don't like Rat Boy, he's no killer. We were all there when he said what he actually said. It was a dumb joke and it was in poor taste, but that's all. He didn't even know Larson was dead at the time. You boys are taking this way too far, Chester said softly. You didn't hear what he said tonight, Alan said coldly. Tell him what you said. Yeah, go on, Summers, tell him, Trevor said. Tell him what you told us, you freak. At first, it didn't seem like Caleb would say anything. 
He simply rubbed his bloody nose on his shoulder and spit on the gym floor. And then he spoke. His voice was pallid and pitiful sounding. I saw him. I saw Larson. I saw him tonight, and he was glowing. No one said anything. We simply stared at him in dumb shock. In the back of my head, I thought of my encounter with Larson. I could tell that Chester and Owen were thinking the same thing. Glowing. Larson had said that his dead dog was glowing. And then Alan spoke. He came running up to the vigil saying this nonsense. Larson's alive, Larson's alive. Can you imagine? It's bad enough what's been said about him this week. He couldn't just stay away tonight. Couldn't just leave it alone. He had to come and try to rile everybody up with this BS. At Larson's vigil for crying out loud. Imagine if Larson's parents had heard him. You should have stayed away Summers and nobody wants to see your face. And so Hux and I got the idea of bringing him in here and giving him some justice, Trevor said. And again there was that maddening gleam in his eyes again. We got him away before anybody else could hear him. I gotta admit I didn't know that Hux had it in him. Alan didn't say anything. He simply looked down at Caleb with complete disgust. I saw him. I saw him, Caleb said, and there was no hysteria in his voice. He spoke as if every word was true. Trevor brought up his leg for another kick. No, wait. I said and I bent down to get eye level with Caleb. His face was a mess of blood, a snot and tears. I had gone to school with Caleb for years. He had not been a nice kid. He lied and said terrible things, poked at too many people. But there was something about what he said. Maybe he was lying, but what if he wasn't? What do you mean you saw Larson? I saw him, Caleb said hoarsely. I saw him by the park and not too far from the pond. He was glowing and smiling. He waved to me. I swear, I swear he did. I know that he's dead, but I saw him. Oh, give me a break, Trevor said, and he connected another kick with Caleb's stomach. Caleb groaned, and it seemed to me that Madison was enjoying all this a bit too much. Stop that, I said, and then I shoved Trevor. What's your problem, Trevor said in response. He raised one of his fists, and his knuckles were flaked with scabs and dry blood, probably from his countless other fights. You want some of this too? Why are you defending him? Alan said. Well, what if he's telling the truth? I knew how ridiculous it sounded the moment the words came out of my mouth, but there was something about Larson's death that I couldn't ignore. His body had been discovered by a pond, completely lifeless. There had been no sign of a struggle, and so far no official statement on his death. What if something had gotten Larson? Something terrible like out of a nightmare or a campfire story. Something that lurks in the dark but glows when it wants to be seen. I know this sounds crazy, I said, but I ran into Larson before he died. He said, he told me that he saw his dead dog. He said his dog had been glowing. You started that, Alan said raising an eyebrow. I thought it was just another BS rumor floating around. It's true, I said defensively. I did run into Larson and he did tell me that. And now, now Caleb is saying something similar. Well, because he heard the rumor, Trevor interjected. 
He heard about what Larson said and how he's trying to spin his own BS on it to rile people up. I don't doubt that you did run into Larson, Alan said to me, and I believe he did tell you that he saw his dead dog. Maybe he was onto something. Maybe he was messing with you, who knows. There's a lot that we don't know about Hal Larson, only that he didn't deserve to die. But Summers here, Summers I don't believe. Summers is a parasite and he was trying to disrupt the vigil. That I can't let stand. But what if Caleb is telling the truth too? I said thoughtfully. And what if Larson really did see his dead dog? And he went looking for it and then it got him. And maybe, maybe not that same thing that got Larson. Is pretending to be Larson. Again, I was painfully aware of how ridiculous it all sounded. Do you hear what you're saying? Trevor said. But Larson got done and by something pretending to be his dead dog. You're worse than Summers, at least he knows that he's full of it. I admit it sounds far-fetched, Chester said. But I've heard of strange things like this back in Louisiana. There are folklore, legends and such. Yeah, and maybe the boogeyman is real too, Trevor said mockingly. In fact, I think that I saw Sandy Claus last year. Only he wasn't delivering presents. He was stooping a hooker beyond the convenience store. Ho, ho, ho. I don't buy any of it, Alan said. You're just trying to prevent the inevitable. Summers was going to get his butt beat sooner or later. Stop protecting him. Well, why don't we just go and check it out, Owen said. He had been quiet for a while and I could tell that he was having trouble with the situation. He didn't like Summers, but Owen wasn't a bad guy. And he wouldn't want somebody getting beat up like this especially if they were telling the truth. Maybe Summers is lying or maybe he isn't. There's only one way to find out, isn't there? Let's just go to the park and see if anything's there. No one said anything. The only sound was Caleb's pitiful wheezing. And then a look came over Alan. It was a look of regret and shame, as if he finally realized what he and Trevor had been doing. He looked down at Caleb's bloody figure and winced. He looked more like a boy scout I knew him to be. Fine, Alan said soberly. We'll check it out. He even bent down and helped Caleb to his feet. Caleb tried to push away, but Trevor latched one of his arms around him. But if there aren't any dead dogs or glowing boys, Trevor said and another mad smile crossed his face. Then we'll really give you something to talk about Summers. The six of us made our way out on one of the school's side entrances. We were away from the vigil which was still going strong. I could hear the sound of these school choirs singing. On this side of the neighborhood, there wasn't anybody else in sight. We walked down with Alan and Trevor in the vanguard, Chester and Caleb in the middle and Owen and I in the rear. For all the beatings that he had taken, Caleb was walking strong and seemed more composed now. Alan and Trevor would continuously look back at Caleb to make sure that he didn't try to run away. Do you really believe this? Owen asked me quietly. I don't know, I said, but it didn't sound like Caleb was lying. Yeah, okay, but Pete, if he isn't lying, what are we going to do if we run into this thing? Oh, I said a little pathetically. I guess I don't really know. Owen gave a wild bark of laughter, shook his head, and we walked on. Eventually, we made it to the park, and it was an eerily quiet night, 
so quiet in fact that not even the crickets were chirping. Well, here we are, Trevor said. Yoo-hoo, are there any glowing monsters here? I saw him, Caleb said. He was here, I swear that he was right here. We looked around the park, but there was nothing but darkness. Trevor and Alan began closing in on Caleb like sharks drawn to blood. Could Summers really have been lying about it all? Is he really just a pest, trying to stir up stuff? Did he come to the vigil just to mess with everybody? To dance on Larson's grave? Come on, you said he was glowing, Summers. You said that you saw Larson and he was glowing. Show us it. Show us or these guys are going to break you in two. Well, there ain't no one else here but us, Sunshine, Trevor said. Yeah, we're tired of your stuff, Summers, Alan said darkly. He was here, I saw him, I saw him. Caleb said in a panicky voice. Sweat had broken out on his face and the rivulet streaked through the dried blood. Guys, come on, I said. But Owen placed a hand on my shoulder and shook his head. Hux was 6'3 and was nothing but muscle. And Madison had years of experience of getting into dirty brawls. I wouldn't be able to stop them any more than I could stop the sun from rising each morning. And now Caleb Summers was going to get his. What's going on here? We all turned toward the sound of the voice. There is a policeman walking down the road toward us. Caleb didn't waste a moment. With Alan and Trevor distracted, he immediately ran the other direction into the dark. He was gone in seconds. Alan Hux, is that you? The officer said when he finally got near enough. Every cop in town knew Alan Hux. He was the star of our high school, the pride of our little perfect town. Madison, is that you too? Every cop also knew Trevor Madison, though obviously for different reasons. It's me, sir, Alan said. What are you boys doing out here? The officer said, eyeing the five of us suspiciously. He seemed just as surprised as I had been to see Hux and Madison together. We just left the vigil, Alan said. We're all heading home. Is that right? The cop said, scratching his nose. Who was that other boy that I saw, the one that ran off? Other boy? Madison said innocently. What other boy? You fellas see another boy here. He looked at us and there was a glare in his eyes, a glare that said, Don't you say a thing. All right, all right, enough, Madison. The officer said somewhat darkly. I sure as heck don't know what's going on here, but you boys go home now. There's no curfew yet, but that may change. Go on now. The officer made a shooing motion with the back of his hand, and the five of us started down the road. Eventually, Alan and Trevor split off from us and disappeared like race into the night. You almost made me believe, Pete. Owen said when it was just the three of us left. Can you imagine if something had shown up in the park? It'll only get worse for summers now, Chester said bleakly. Hux and Madison won't let this go. They'll tell others what Summers said tonight and it's going to get real bad for him. He needs to stop stirring stuff up, Owen said. I mean, coming to Larson's vigil tonight saying the things that he said. What did he think was going to happen? At that, Chester and I merely shook our heads. What had Caleb Summers been thinking? What did he hope to achieve by being such an annoying past? 
Was it some kind of retaliation for the way that he had been treated by the others this week? Didn't he realize that he was making things infinitely worse? Why would he lie about seeing Larson in the park? And couldn't he feel the fervor that was taking over the school, the town even? Didn't he know people were upset about Larson's death, not just the tragedy but the mystery of it all? Didn't he understand that Larson's death was a blotch on our perfect little town and people were screaming for answers, screaming for justice? I saw him. He was glowing. Things did get worse for Caleb Summers after all. Hux and Madison told people about Caleb's antics at the vigil and word spread very fast. If he hadn't been already, then there was no doubt that Caleb was now public enemy number one, as far as our high school was concerned. More and more people started shoving him in the hallway. Teachers who would normally put a stop to that simply looked the other way. Once while walking down the hall, I even saw Mr. Rathers bump into Caleb. He bumped him so hard that Caleb nearly fell over. Mr. Rathers didn't even acknowledge Caleb. He simply kept walking. As for Caleb himself, well, he looked like a walking ghoul. His face and body were bruised from the beating that Alan Trevor had given him the other day. His skin had gone a sickly pale from all the stress and his eyes were constantly narrowed, as if he was always expecting some sort of attack. He didn't speak much either. He simply kept his head down, only darting his eyes up every once in a while to make sure that nobody was coming up behind him. Caleb was once a lively person who would often say terrible or nasty things, but now, now he was like a scarecrow. A walking scarecrow that said nothing. A scarecrow that constantly looked over its shoulder, for fear of having its straw ripped out. Did you hear what Summers had said at the vigil? Can you believe it? Yeah, he said that he killed Lars and admitted to her right out in the open. I heard that he had a bomb on him. He was planning on taking everybody out right there and then. Yeah, Summers said he's going to do it again. Who do you think that will get it next? Summers, man, watch out for that guy. Oh God, oh God. Glowing? He said he was glowing. And worst of all, Caleb Summers was alone. He had no friends, no confidence, no one to protect him in any way. He was on an island surrounded by sharks, hundreds of them. Owen and Chester had cautioned me against trying to comfort Caleb or help him in any way, for fear that some of Caleb's would-be attackers would turn their attention to me, especially since I was the one that had started the rumor about Larson saying that he saw his dead dog. No grief ever got back to me though, it only ever was targeted at Caleb. I still felt bad for him, even though he had lied about seeing Larson in the park. But did he lie though? Are you still sure that he lied, Pete? Are you okay with what's happening right now? I wasn't okay with it. There was a part of me that still believed Caleb. Believed that he had seen Larson in the park days after he had died. The same way that Larson had seen his dead dog. There was something lurking in our town lurking in the shadows. And it was preying on people. But no one was noticing it. No one but Larson and Caleb. It was Caleb versus the rest of the school for days on end. Caleb couldn't even take the school bus anymore. The kids on there would crowd around and gang up on him. And the bus driver would simply whistle and keep on driving. He had to run home at the end of every school day. Some kids would follow him on bikes and throw things at him. 
It was terrifying how quickly people had turned on Caleb. We know that it was you, Summers. We know that it was you. Yeah, what were Larson's last words, you killer? What did he say, killer? Why'd you come to the vigil, Summers? Why did you come to the vigil? Oh god, I think I'm next. Glowing, I swear that he was glowing. Yeah, somebody should just put an end to Summers. Through all of it, though, Caleb never said anything. Never fought back, he took their jeers and punches on the chin. He simply trucked on like a scarecrow floating down a river. It didn't matter how many stones the scarecrow ran into, or how many branches it got snagged on. It simply kept floating down the river, even as it lost all of its straw. Eventually, Caleb ran out of straw. He was found dead just a couple of weeks after Hal Larson had died. His body had been found not too far from the park where he claimed he saw Larson the night of the vigil. According to the reports, his death was eerily identical to that of Larson as well. There were no indications of how he died and no signs of a struggle. He had a couple scrapes and bruises from his continuous tormentors, but other than that, it was as if the life had been sucked out of him. At first, I thought that maybe one of my classmates had taken things too far, that Hux or Madison had finally decided to give Caleb what he deserved once and for all, had decided to put an end to Caleb Ratboy Summers. But I knew that wasn't true. No one from my school killed Caleb, not directly at least. Caleb had been killed by the same thing that he killed Hal Larson, a thing that lurked in the shadows yet seemed to glow as well a thing that could take the appearance of a dead dog or a dead schoolboy. But in some ways, maybe my school was still responsible. Maybe they had picked on Caleb one too many times. Maybe Caleb went searching for that thing that lurked in the shadows, hoping that it would put him out of his misery. In the end, it had. Caleb Summers was dead. After Caleb's death, our school closed down for a couple of days and a strict curfew was put in place. A strange thing happened after his death. It was as if the violent fervor that everybody had against Caleb had broke, and a sort of shame and disgust had come over my classmates. Shame for how they had treated him. Yet even though their shame was clear to see on their faces, none of them would admit to how badly they had treated Caleb. Oh, poor Caleb, he was such a nice guy. He was an angel, wasn't you? Can't believe he died. How oh, I hung out with him at Larson's vigil, nicest guy in the world. Uh, let's pour a toast out for Summers. To Caleb Summers. Oh god, I still think I'm next. They're all pretending like it never happened. Owen said to Chester and I one day. We were hanging out in my backyard, and the curfew wouldn't be for another hour. Like Rat, like Summers, wasn't on top of everybody's crap list for weeks on end. We're guilty in all this, Chester drawled. We should have listened to you, Pete. We should have stuck up for Caleb and all went too far. It doesn't matter now, I said gloomily. Do you think whatever got Larson got Caleb? The glowy thing, Chester asked and there was clear fear in his eyes. I simply nodded. After that, Chester left, saying that he had to be home soon. It was just Owen and I, and for a while, neither of us spoke. And then Owen said, Did I ever tell you that I was best friends with Summers when we were kids? I shook my head. 
It's true. Back in elementary school, before you boys moved here, I used to hang out with him all the time on the weekends. Our houses aren't that far apart, and he got me a pop gun for one of my birthdays. Can you believe that? I still have it somewhere buried in my room. The strange thing is, I can't remember why we stopped being friends. It's just a blur to me, Pete. One day we were friends, and the next day we weren't. One day I was hanging out with him, and the next day I was hanging out with you and Chester. Why do kids stop being friends with each other? Why do they stop, Pete? When did he stop being Caleb Summers to me and become Rat Boy? I wish I could say sorry to him. God, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry too, was all that I could say. Eventually, Owen laughed. It got dark and curfew set in. The stars were out and the moon was bright. There was a small open field behind my house and I was going to go inside when something caught my eye. There was somebody standing in the field. It was Caleb Summers and he was glowing. Caleb, is that you? I said in shock. I hopped my backyard's fence and ran into the field. It was Caleb. His skin was white and there was a glow to him. He was waving at me and he was smiling, gesturing for me to come closer. I felt as if I were in a trance. I needed to get closer to him. I had to get closer. Caleb, I can't believe it's you. And then it happened. Caleb Summers vanished. What was standing in the field instead was something black and oozy like tar with tentacles like a squid. It had red eyes and then glared at me hungrily. One of its tentacles made a swoop at me, but I quickly jumped back. I gave a shout and then ran back to my house. I jumped over the fence, ran inside the back door of my house, and I locked it. I fell against the door, gasping. I knew instantly what I had just encountered. It had been the thing that killed Hal Larson and Caleb Summers. The thing that lurked in the shadows of our perfect little town. I had only survived because it had mistakenly dissolved its illusion a moment too soon. Had it pretended to be Caleb for only a second longer. Eventually, our little perfect town went back to normal. School and life resumed. No one died for the rest of the school year and during the summer, I found out that my father had gotten a job in California and we moved away from that town. Owen Chester and I said that we would always stay in touch, but eventually that stopped and I lost contact with them. I haven't spoken to them in years. I never forgot about them, though, or about Hal Larson and Caleb Summers. Part of me wants to go back to that perfect little town, see if Owen and Chester are still there. I wonder what they've been up to all these years. But another part of me is afraid. Afraid that when I walk those streets at night, I'll see something glowing in the dark. And it'll be Caleb Summers waving at me. Caleb Summers smiling and glowing. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.